Hello and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur and investor and founder of Pringle Capital. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high growth business. This week's episode is with Freddie Ward, co-founder and CEO at Wild, the refillable natural deodorant business. Freddie was previously the director of marketing in the UK for HelloFresh, where he really cut his teeth testing over 30 acquisition channels. In this episode, we cover marketing, naturally, how Freddie started Wild, building a team, D2C strategy, and much more. This episode was great fun to record, so I hope you enjoy it. Let's get started. Hi, Freddie. Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me as a big fan of the podcast. So, yeah, great to be chatting to you today. Well, it's very kind. We're really happy to have you here. Freddie, maybe you could start by telling us a bit about Wild and also your journey up to launching the business. Yeah, sure. So Wild's mission is quite simple. It's to remove single-use plastic and create high-performing, natural-formulated products for your everyday personal care routines. And we started by launching a refillable natural deodorant. So you get an aluminium case and then you get bamboo pulp biodegradable refills that um, you can just kind of dispose of um, without any of that guilt of plastic once you've finished kind of using them. We're primarily a D2C business. So um, our website is wearewild.com um, and we do a little bit of retail as well. So, and we launched Wild in kind of mid 2019 is when we started kind of working on it. So just operational for nearly three years now. And then if we go back in my career, so really my career started at, um, at HelloFresh. So I joined there when we were a team of uh, about five of us in the UK office, about 30 people kind of globally. And my role was kind of sales intern. <laughs> so not nothing particularly kind of glamorous. And I think at that stage, recipe boxes didn't exist as a category. And there wasn't, you know, things like Facebook were, were just beginning to become big channels to grow these businesses, but they hadn't quite developed much there. So my job was to go from festival to festival and try and persuade people to sign up to this thing called a, a recipe box. So traveled uh, a lot across the UK, a lot of rainy weekends, trying to persuade one or two unlucky people to to buy them. And, and we didn't even have iPads. So I literally used to take their credit card details down on a piece of paper. And if it'd been a good weekend, I'd spend the whole of Monday uploading those orders into our into our website. And it'd been a quiet weekend then. You know, I wasn't very well received when I came back to the office. Again, often a bit of rain, they, they kind of get smudged or something. So hard to read someone's credit card details properly. Anyway, that was the kind of unglamorous start to my entrepreneurial kind of career. Ended up uh, running the marketing team for the UK. So a team of about 20 um, scaled the business to about 100 million in the UK. Made tons of mistakes. Pretty much every mistake in the book was pretty young and, and naive, but also eager to learn and you know keen to make the most of what was an incredible opportunity and had the most amazing time just absolutely loved it 
an incredible six years learned from a lot of amazing people and look back on it with a huge kind of fondness and really wanted to take what I'd learned and kind of apply that to my own own business, which was where we started thinking about Wild. Great to hear people rising up through the ranks into those senior roles and you know, and ended up head of UK marketing. What does marketing mean to you? You've got a D2C brand now, so it's critical, but what does actually marketing mean to you? So at HelloFresh, it was very growth focused, very numbers driven and put money in and get money out is how we looked at it. And, and we built a real rigor and data-driven obsessive culture and i think that's a super important foundation for any d2c business so performance marketing is where i've grown and that's my kind of bread and butter i think an area that we thought less about in that world was brand and you know i think that plays a, a more important role now at wild so there's obviously still that deep data-driven performance-based marketing but we're also trying to create a kind of deeper relationship with customers and build a brand that we can be proud of and you can be a bit more involved with as a kind of founder. And I suppose also, if you look at every D2C brand, if you create an interesting product and category, you're going to get competitors. So I suppose the acquisition side, very performance led, and then the retention side, there's a lot of kind of brand side that kind of comes into it. And that's how I tend to think about the marketing. I must caveat that I have a co-founder, Charlie, He's actually better at marketing than I am. So he's the CMO. And then I kind of look after most other things. But I like to give him my worthy opinion, which he doesn't enjoy too much on a daily basis. I was actually hammering him about CACs this morning. So we'll see. Um, didn't seem to go down that well. But yeah. We, we had Papier, the founder of Papier on, on the podcast recently. And he talked about brand as well, which I think is interesting because it's just harder to measure right than marketing people now think of marketing as being such a quantitative thing where you know how much you put in and you know exactly what that spits out but brand is less tangible i mean what have you done around brand that is beyond you know nice looking website great design that you think is really important and how do you sort of determine the payoff from that so we haven't spent loads of money on it we're not one of those companies that has gone and done a huge strategic and I think brand in your early years needs to be very natural. We chose the name. We came up with the concept. We, we came up with the kind of guidelines. And I think one of the big mistakes I see is people feel like they can outsource that at the start and they go and get a brand agency to do the naming and the design and set the framework. And then I think the founders are always trying to working within a framework that someone else has kind of set. And my big belief in brand, and, and I think that kind of came really well. I, I listened to Tamor's podcast with you is it, it's about crafting your personality and bringing some of that out in the brand that you that you deliver and i think that if you can do that that feels like a a more true reflection of what you're trying to do and and you can connect deeper with your kind of customers and and it all kind of comes sort of naturally so with wild for us it's like we just try and have a bit of fun you know i think charlie and i got naked and put some billboards on for valentine's day in trafalgar square or Little things like that where it's like, look, if nothing else, Wild wants to, you know, make people smile and, you know, we take our mission really seriously, but not take ourselves too seriously. And and the hope is that that over the long term engenders brand preference or at least people being aware of who you are and, and kind of what you're doing. So for me, it's just kind of doing little things to live up to 
how you see that brand. And I'd say customer service is also really important, like your tone of voice, how you treat your customers, what your refunds policy are, all these things build up to that kind of intangible reputation. If you think about people like Papier and Bloom and Wild, who are all quite like customer centric, brand centric, you know, I think if you can blend that with a um, kind of heavy performance mindset as well, that for me seems to be like a great combination. And that's what Wild aspires to try and achieve. Yeah, it's really interesting that like genesis of sort of authenticity at the heart of it. Because I, I mean, I've seen portfolio companies like rebrand at Series A and starts to become a bit sterile almost. It's sort of done by a third party agency, as you say. So yeah, it's interesting that I think that is really important to have that authenticity. So with Wild, what did you do to kind of validate the idea? And what do you do when you start a product-based business like Wild Deodorant? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? How do you kick things off? I, I think the simple answer is you don't do what I did. Uh, <laughs> so the first six months were pretty much unmitigated disaster. And primarily the responsibility lands at my feet. Because I came from food. I didn't really know a huge amount about personal care. But I was like, how hard can it be? You know, we're putting 50 different ingredients into a box. We're sending out 100,000 boxes a week. And, you know, that's pretty complex. Like, I've just got to make a couple of deodorant sticks, figure out how to sell them, and we'll be, we'll be on our way. So the theory was like, look, if we're going to spend loads of time on this and invest the next five, 10 years, we need to prove that there's a market here and that that our, some of our hunches were kind of correct. And then once we prove that out, if we need to, we can go and raise some kind of external capital. The idea was like, we'll put up a Shopify site, we'll do it all ourselves. We'll go and buy some natural deodorants, find a kind of manufacturer, you know, label them up and just kind of start sending them out. And we'll get an idea of CAC, we'll get an idea of market size, we'll get an idea on customer feedback and, and we can kind of iterate from there. So very much a believer in in the kind of get something live and then figure out from there. Turns out cosmetics are quite like highly regulated and need to go through quite a lot of testing before you can bring them to market. So I think the like now the realistic timeline is sort of minimum six months. I rang loads of manufacturers. I just Google bring all these manufacturers like six to nine months. I was like, are you joking? What am I going to do for the next six to nine months? I don't have a job. I've told everyone I'm starting this great company. I need it next week, not six to nine months kind of time. That was my first mistake. I should have realized that actually what everyone was telling me was correct and kind of worked with them. So in the end, we found this supplier who was willing to work with us and move quickly. And it turned out that they were willing to do that because they had no professional standards whatsoever. They sent me samples, which looked really great and amazing. And then ordered our first like big batch and they arrived and it was like, what the hell, you know, what the hell are these? The packaging basically didn't work. The labels, like if you put your hand on them, the, the color came off and the deodorant was like not ideal. So anyway, we, we managed to sell these. So the good news is that we managed to validate that you could acquire customers and that there was demand for natural deodorant. Our net promoter score was minus 20 and Facebook had this, this score, which we used to look at every week. If you drop below that score, they basically ban you or like they, they ramp your costs up and, and we were literally hovering on that line so that they like survey customers who bought your product through Facebook and every week we're terrified we're going to get banned because our product was being so poorly kind of rated so the experience from that was like look our business idea is good but we've, we've got to get much better at making a natural deodorant 
we've got to deliver the wider mission, which is kind of removing plastic. And we should just stop doing this as soon as possible because we just it's now like doing more uh, harm than kind of good. So we obviously then went and tried to raise our like pre-seed, early seed. And we didn't tell our investors a lot of that story. And we'd always be like, oh, sorry, we're out of stock of the deodorants. Like, we'll get them to you soon. We're trying, you know, just try and avoid them understanding. And, and on the back of those kind of early metrics, we were able to raise some kind of capital. But again, it took us about six months to raise that money. I think we had over 100 conversations and, you know, a lot of rejection over TAM, basically. Everyone was like, yeah, natural deodorants. It's like a two million pound market. It's a tiny TAM. This is never going to work. So yeah, it was quite tough. It's great hearing the unvarnished version because I think, you know, as, as VCs, we of course are being fed lies lathered in varnish uh, when we speak to founders most of the time. And sometimes they come out after you've invested and you're like, okay, right, this is actually what we're dealing with here. Um, hopefully not too often, but this is not a space of judgment. And so this is not a judgment. But how, how did you feel? Did you feel at all uncomfortable kind of pitching to VCs this product that you knew was just subpar? Or, or did you kind of you know, get comfortable with that because you knew it was possible to deliver a great product in the long run and you just had to get the money in the door? No, no, I, w- I wasn't worried about that because we were already at that stage working on a, on improving the product. And, and I'd learned a lot from that. And we basically very nearly closed around in what it must have been August 2019. So we had a VC who wanted to do half of it and an angel who were going to do another half. And that fell through. That went on for like three weeks, last stage, due diligence, everything. And then they kept delaying, delaying. And then finally they called us up. And we, we thought it was all a done deal. And um, they said, no, we're, we're pulling it. We, we just don't think this is a, an interesting enough market. And then the angel investor called me up the next day and said, well, if this... Uh, this VC is not involved, then I'm out as well. So we went from having half a million, what we thought secured to back to zero, which is quite a humbling experience, but also it would have been too early. And if they had invested at that point, they would have had a lot more visibility on everything that we'd done wrong. The fact is it took us another three, four months to raise. By that time, we got our shit together and we were much better placed to go and kind of invest that money and, and, and kind of grow. So I look back at it now and I'm like, well, it was kind of meant to be. But at the time, it was kind of very painful, but certainly never any guilt. I, I think the fundamentals of the business and everything I showed to them and the hypothesis was like, look, even with a average product, which I said to them and all of this stuff, the like underlying assumptions are, are, are really good. And we've got x y and z of how we're going to improve it and so that kind of worked as a narrative and and ended up being quite good for those so far who've invested in the in in that round in the end yeah i'm sure they're not complaining now (laughs) and you so that must have led you to starting to build a team and i always think it's interesting hearing from founders like which hires they maybe wish they executed earlier in the journey and which ones they could have maybe delayed that maybe they jumped the gun on a bit. So are there any hires that you think, God, that person actually really moved the needle and it would have been great to have them earlier in the journey and which one could have maybe been pushed back a little bit? I don't have a huge number of regrets, to be honest. I I made a huge number of hiring mistakes at HelloFresh at every stage of that journey. And it was really painful. I had to fire a lot of people and 
that used to ruin months of my life. I used to like get really depressed and really take it personally. I kind of toughened up towards the end and realized that, you know, to solve that, I just had to get slightly better at interviewing and kind of understanding what I need and needed. But I think Charlie, my co-founder, is also in, in recruitment. So for high growth companies. Um, so we both had kind of clear view of what we wanted to do. And essentially, our philosophy was hire young, bright people who want to come and build something exciting with us and who cover our weak spots. So both of us are like, we're good operators. You know, we love the hustle and bustle of a startup, but we're probably not like really detail oriented and, you know, really good at setting up processes and and operations. So our first hire basically, or second hire was like a head of ops and she's still here, Jocelyn, and, and doing a really great job. And then my next hire after that was a, a head of finance. And I'd made such a mess of the finances that I had to call him a month before. And I said, I'll do anything for you to start earlier because we're growing super fast. And there's like massive problems that we messed up on stock and how we were recognizing things. And it was just a world of pain. And he came in as like an angel, like this sort of guardian angel. And tidied it all up in the first week and luckily for everyone I'm I'm no longer the the sole charge of our kind of finances so that those hires for us were, were really key and and have been great parts of the kind of leadership team and generally our view has been higher when we really need it we try and hire people and keep lean and and remain disciplined and that served us pretty well I think a lot of people would come into our now and be like you need to hire C-level executives and you need people with more experience for the next phase of growth. But my view, I was always given the opportunity at HelloFresh to like step up. And if I didn't step up, they weren't romantic about these things. They would have fired me. So, you, you know, I managed to recover from my mistakes and step up enough to go on that whole journey. And I really want, if possible, for the team who we've hired to be able to, to do the same thing. Moving on slightly, I, I'm really interested in people who think about starting a business are probably most often thinking about a, a D2C business because they're quite accessible. Um, it often doesn't require any kind of domain expertise. And I think a lot of people just think, you know, okay, think of an idea and launch it and go from there. Do, do you feel like you've built a kind of playbook? Do you think you could do it over again with another consumer product or, or does every business vary so much that it's, it's just not like that i think there was a more clear playbook a couple of years ago when facebook was in the glory days and it was quite simple of find a good product be good at facebook marketing scale your business and then build from there i would say in my you know experiences so far the, the world is changing so fast at the moment channels, challenges, and I don't even have the playbook at the moment for our next phase of growth. And I think for any consumer business starting in 2022, it's like you you have to be incredibly entrepreneurial. You're going to have to be way better than we were at execution. And I think there's some big things that are going to be the next frontiers, but they're not obvious yet. So the opportunity is, can you be one of the first to figure out that next channel, that next growth hack? But if you try and launch and spend loads of money on Facebook, and that's the strategy, which is the kind of playbook of old, 
I'm not sure there are going to be many businesses built like that anymore. And so it'll be fascinating to see. So I would say for now, I, I don't have a clear playbook. Yeah. And, and you touched on it there. I mean, what, what are the channels that you're excited about? I mean, people talk about influence marketing. They talk about TikTok. Which channels are you excited about? Have you started experimenting and, and had any success in kind of alternative channels? We, we experiment with everything. I think we tried like 30 different channels at, at HelloFresh. And you know, again, we're spending you know, over 20 million a year on, on marketing towards the end there. So what that allows me to do is have a really good fear. You know, I've tried all of these and, and while the numbers are not directly comparable, you, you get a feel for how a channel performs and, and what they do. And definitely at the moment, we're trying to figure out a lot of these kind of newer channels, TikTok, as you say, kind of influencers, Facebook in its new world. Um, we're constantly trying to learn and, and test and some of them are working well and we're scaling and others we're kind of spending money and trying to stay patient but they're not you know they're not quite working yet so it's a really mixed bag and you know we have some things that are like working really well for two three weeks and then for some reason they're going off a cliff and we're having to to kind of react so it's a lot less stable and I think any really good D2C business has a really nice blended mix of you know nothing is more than 30 40 percent of your of your channel um, strategy because at some point you know Facebook's a great example where a lot of companies 70 percent spend on Facebook suddenly the CPA start going up because they can no longer do what they used to be able to do with the data and it's like what's your plan b and so for us you know sometimes we accept a higher cost per acquisition for greater diversity to help us give room and figure stuff out for where we think the world's going to be in the future not just at, at the moment so so do you find that the cpas the, the cost of acquiring a customer varies massively or is this like fine tuning we're talking about here and, and maybe you know maybe maybe in your time at HelloFresh you saw channels where you tried it and suddenly it was like oh my god this is amazing this is like half the cost to acquire a customer yeah, you find those hacks and they're great when you figure them out, but they, they often, they won't last. And normally the basic rules of D2C, I would say, if it's cheap, they're low quality. And if it's expensive, they're high quality. So there are some channels with crazy low CPAs, but if you look at the retention curve, they're also really low. So normally what you're trying to do is blend that so you've got a mixture of lower cost, lower CPA channels with lower quality customers and then higher quality customers that are dragging up your cost per acquisition, but they're improving your LTV charts. And it kind of depends the investment environment. Are you trying to prove a low CAC or are you trying to prove good retention? And, if, you know, normally you're trying to do a little bit of both. So you're kind of trying to blend those. But definitely, for example, direct mail. We did a lot of direct mail at HelloFresh super expensive channel but very targeted because you are using data where you're bringing together lots of different purchase points of those customers and you're able to really accurately predict their income and their spend so it'd always be the highest cac channel but also we knew that the the ltv on that channel would be double what um, what it was on facebook for example so interesting i think a great lesson in there for founders to think about opening up more channels and experimenting with more. I mean, having 30 plus channels, I think a lot of founders get a bit siloed and when something starts working, as you say, they kind of double it down on it and then become over-reliant. So it's a great lesson in there. 
I wanted to ask about new product ranges because you guys have expanded beyond deodorant now. So what does it take for you to move into a new sector? Like, What do you need for you to go, right, we've made the decision. What validation do you need for you to do that? And um, yeah, how do you go about launching soaps and other new products? What we have at the moment are soaps and minis, and we don't really account them as new products. They're purely a kind of average order value play where we're just trying to build up the basket size of customers. And it's like, hey, they're getting their deodorant. What else would be convenient and what's easy for us to like not distract the business? So for the first two years, we've just been relentlessly focused on improving the deodorant um, and improving the whole product experience around that. And and I'm a massive believer in in focus, like do one thing well, put all your resource and energy into that and, and try and be the best you can kind of at it. So, you know, I think I've got seven deodorants lined up in my bathroom at the moment that we're, we're split testing to like figure out the next generation, which I think is going to be the fifth generation of wild deos. And we just know that if we can in, every time just improve the efficacy and the experience a little bit for our customers then that will flow into our kind of retention so the first thing that wild is is like we're pretty disciplined you know again a lot of our investors would be like deodorant is too small you should launch loads of products this i heard that so many times like oh it's a stupid idea why are you only just doing one product it's too low aov etc etc but when i look back we're known for something and we're known for doing it well and we can do it better and as soon as you start bringing new products in, you know, it's the next sexy thing that the whole business starts focusing on and, and they, they lose sight of that. And, you know, this world is brutal. You're going to have competitors. They're going to come in. They're going to tear your product to pieces and they're coming for you. And so if you're not top of your game, they're going to take that kind of share. So the first thing and, and what I really try and do in this team is like do one thing well and be known for it and make that hero product really great. And I think every company, you know, two years is is about the right time to to do that. And then in terms of future product development, again, hopefully we will be bringing out new products in the relatively near future. But again, Wild's not going to launch 10 products in a year. It's probably one, maybe two. And, you know, where we get excited is like, how can we design a product for that customer group. And and the wild customer group is what we call the light green consumer. So they're kind of aware of sustainability trends. They're aware of those sort of social pressures, but they're fundamentally quite lazy and they're not really willing to make many kind of sacrifices. And, And what we're trying to do is design products that feel aspirational, make them feel good and allow them to switch to like more sustainable alternatives without compromise. And that, that kind of, fits the narrative and then we go out and adapt and test and also trying to put some innovation on and move quicker than the larger guys to bring new things to market so in the short it's like focus do one thing well and then when we add new products add them very slowly and take quite big bets on what's going to be next hopefully we're launching something soon and and the it's high stakes you've got no idea how that's going to go and that's nerve-wracking yeah, I think Andy Shovel at this, the plant-based meat company on the podcast, he said, we don't just want to launch like a slightly different package version of a one meat product as another, like we have to properly innovate on that category. And so, yeah, it's just kind of interesting hearing founders talk about 
thinking about different product ranges and, and still thinking about the innovation you can bring to that sector, not just relying on the brand you've built already around something and trying to sort of just roll out more stuff. So really interesting. But Yeah. So, so where does that strategy lead of, you know, gradual launches and because I think lots of D2C brands, they go and then they decide actually the time is right to sell relatively early on in their journey. And, and you know, that can be a great outcome for early investors and, and the founders and, and early employees as well. But I wonder what, what your vision is here with Wild and is it a five-year-from-now vision? Is it a 10-year-from-now vision? And I suppose, what's the end game for you, do you think? What would you consider your life's work done? <laughs> I want a great faster than we did at HelloFresh is kind of the uh I think we got to 100 million in six years there and profitable in our in our last year I think with Wild I say to the team we're not profitable yet and I don't think we can count ourselves a proper business until we kind of are so like stage one is become profitable <laughs> like fast growing D2C with money is is relatively easy fast growing D2C whilst making money is is like quite a bit harder so I'll feel less imposter syndrome coming on these podcasts once of generating some profit for, for the business. And then thinking sort of longer term, I think you can overthink these things. It's like build a great business, create great products and have fun while you're doing it and just see where the journey takes you. I'm not obsessed with building a billion dollar business. I'm not like the sacrifices the guys made at HelloFresh to build that business were unbelievable. And I don't think I've got that. I'm not sure if I've got that. And I don't think you know until you move into those phases of growth to see, you know, what's the appetite here? Where where are we going? What are we doing? And I'm more worried of like, how do we get through the next three months? And you've got rising inflation, you've got currency problems, you've got supply chain problems. And it's like, if I start thinking too far ahead about building this like 100 million, 200 million business and like what we're going to sell it for, you know, I'm losing focus of just like, doing the fundamentals right and doing that right. So I think for me, it's like keep enough cash in the bank, number one, become profitable. And then, you know, as long as we're having fun and and we're growing fast, then there's going to be loads of opportunities either to go and get further venture or to look at exits or, or whatever. But I, I definitely won't get ahead of myself. And I've seen so many D2C sectors get off to flyers, mattresses, razors, they've been the hottest things and everyone's like this is so sexy and they're so amazing and they're growing so fast and a lot of those businesses you look at them now they're worth zero you know and the, the founders were legends for a year and now no one's heard of them again and you know those lessons ring very true in my ears and that for me it's like we just have to be super focused particularly in moments like now and not get distracted about big exits, big egos, et cetera. Yeah, I think you make a great point about different founders wanting different things. And it's a question of life decisions, right? That Nick from Revolut has just launched a VC fund, which I think is really exciting. I, I really like what they're doing. Uh, and the photo on the sort of PR was him with a background with some neon lights behind it saying never settle. And I think that that is probably what we're talking about here. It's those founders who you know want to go on to build Decacorns they're probably never settled and that's probably the decision made they make. And I don't know whether that's the right decision for someone to be happy in life. You know, I, I became a dad at a similar time to launching Wild and I definitely someone who wants to be 
present and active in my family's life as well as building a kind of business. And I think potentially at some point that becomes harder if you're trying to build those billion, $10 billion businesses. And a lot of those guys are just, they're relentlessly focused and they're working unbelievable hours and they've got incredible drive. I'm a like competitor. I want Wild to do the best it can and I want to give it everything, but there's more to my life than just business. And, you know, I, I don't want it to dictate everything. And, you know, I have a wife who wouldn't tolerate that anyway. So it, it's kind of trying to build, you know, build in, in the most ambitious way we can, but also make sure that I have time for some other stuff and that the whole team have fun as they're working so much of their lives. And it's really important to me that it's like, it's not like a smoothie beanbag culture, but they have a nice time. They make some friends and we build something we can all be proud of. But what's really hard is this like being a nice company and a nice place to work, but also having that cutting competitive edge. You still want people to come in and, and win. You know, sometimes that involves working hard, working late and finding that balance between the like you have to work. You know, I think at Rocket, you know, you were never allowed to be on holiday if you're a founder, you're expected to work every weekend. Like Ollie Samware used to ring people up at 11 o'clock at night and have three hour phone calls on your metrics and stuff. So that is for some people and I can see that works, but that's just, that's not the sort of investors I'm going to go after. That's not the sort of trajectory I've set wild on. And for me, it's a, slight, it's a slightly more balanced view. And, and I think my investors are quite aligned with that as well. They're not, they want me to grow fast. They get me wrong uh, and they want me to be committed, but they kind of understand the family side of things as well. Yeah, 100%. It's, just, it's so great to hear there are so many different ways to build successful businesses and there, there is no right or wrong. It, and it does come down to the founder's vision and the culture they want to set and everything like that. And I think it's a really positive message because there are employees that fit into certain companies and don't fit into others as well. And it sounds like Wild would be an amazing place to work and still very ambitious as well as maybe striking a bit of more of a balance and also burnout is a real thing let's not get it wrong like there are companies that burn out founders that burn out teams that burn out it's great to have different perspective and different people do fit into different cultures so Freddie it's been so interesting hearing about Wild I mean uh, there's been a really interesting conversation you've been so honest and told us amazing stories and it, you've built an incredible brand I think we always like to try and get to understand the founder as well. And you've touched on a few bits there about being a dad and, you know, the culture you're trying to set at Wild. If you could explain where you think you bring the most value to your business, what would you say your kind of edges as a founder are? I don't think many people have been on the inside of a company that's built a hundred million pound business in the UK. So I think for me, that gives me a lot of knowledge and a lot of understanding. And I can I can see things coming. You know, I can see that the culture breaks at 30 people and everyone starts complaining about the good old days at 50 people and and that you get hires wrong and, and that the world seems to be ending a lot. And it was a really intense experience in my 20s. But, you know, I'm a lot more level-headed now. I'm a lot more controlled and I get a lot a lot less distracted by some of these problems and it's just like a problem solving kind of mentality. So I think that experience was just totally invaluable and, and something that's probably often underrated by people who've spoken to us at, at Wild. I don't think they really understood 
that journey and how involved parts of that have nurtured me. And then I'd like to think that, yeah, I have a lot of energy. I have a lot of passion. As I said, I'm a competitive guy and I want everyone to do better. And I think when I'm at my best, people feed off that and they want to work hard and they want to go and do it together. There are moments where I'm a grumpy sod and it doesn't go so well. So I kind of have to try and control that. But yeah, generally it's bringing my energy, getting the best from people. And more and more now it's like letting people who are far better at certain jobs do their roles and not, I'm not a micromanager, understand the high level and push them to, to try and achieve what we can. Yeah, awesome. I do think that those experiences of going on scale up journeys can be so interesting and I think you know Hector I don't want to put words in your mouth but I certainly like to see companies that where founders have maybe been on those journeys and um, we've got more and more people in the market that have been on unicorn journeys which is really exciting and a lot of them are now coming down to start new companies which is great so that's really amazing Freddie thank you so much as you'll know we'd like to uh, wrap up our podcast with our dinner party guest game so if there were three people, it could be absolutely anyone that you could have dinner with, who would they be for you? Okay, so I, I've got three kind of real passions in life, I suppose. The first is kind of entrepreneurialism and kind of business. And so my first guest would be Phil Knight from Nike, just like massive fan of his and, and love the story of Shoe Dog and, and would love to chew the fat on some of those tales, like massive inspiration. The second is sport. I love all sport, love watching it. And I've gone for tennis, so I'm going to ask Andy Murray to join me at the, the dinner table again. Would love to talk through some of those battles he's had over the years and get into his kind of mentality. And then finally cooking. I, I'm a big fan of my food and cooking is what I kind of do in my kind of downtime. So I'm going to ask Jamie Oliver to come and chat some food stuff as well. Awesome. Yeah, I think Andy Murray even does a bit of angel investing. So he, can, he might be able to be able to talk through some of that as well well that's awesome thank you so much freddie great guests awesome story with wild and that we we wish you all the success with it i think you're building a really interesting company sustainability is so important at the moment and what you guys are doing is awesome so thank you so much for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story no problem thank you thank you very much for having me that's it for this week thanks very much for listening to stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.